So I want you to, you can turn in your Bible. We've already had it read, uh, the book of James today. But um, before we move on, just a lot of little things to deal with before the message. Uh, as, as you all know, if you're paying attention at all to the news, um, Roe v. Wade was overturned this week by the Supreme Court. And I realize uh, as I look across the uh, the dumpster fire that is Twitter. Um, I saw <laughs> anger. I saw elation. I saw a lot of mixed feelings in between. Um, and I think that, that one of the things that we need to, um, to recognize is, is that Christians, uh, we are capable, I think, of more complex ethical thinking than, than, than a lot of people in our culture. We have the ability, because of God's word, to think deeply and consistently about a lot of different things. Uh, we can, because of God's word, we can see the value and the dignity of the image of God in every woman who's had an abortion. We can see the dignity that she has, right? Or everyone who's contemplated abortion. But at the same time, we can see the dignity and value in, of the image of God in the unborn. And we can value those things equally. Seems impossible in our culture, but I believe that's exactly the tension where Jesus would have us to live right there, is to value um, both sides of that. We, we have the ability to understand and have compassion on a woman who finds herself pregnant, but who's afraid, who's uh, overwhelmed or, or scared to bring a child into her circumstances that she's in. We can understand that. We can feel for that. We can also um, have a, an understanding and compassion for the unborn or the vo- most vulnerable human beings among us who have no voice for anyone to hear. Um, and I would argue if you find yourself on one side of that or the other, uh, more, th- more so than not, your ethic, your biblical ethic of life needs to grow. It needs to be stretched because not only do we believe that the Im- every human being is made in the image of God, unborn to, uh, to the elderly, uh, we also have a, a savior who's called us to love everyone. Right? Even people we disagree with, even people that, uh, that might vote in ways differently than we would. So we have, a, we have a, not only an ethic of understanding the value of life, but we have a call to love, a radical call to love uh, others. And so I would say, um, I would just encourage you, don't get sucked in by the rhetoric, the, the disdain, the vitriol that gets thrown around in our culture. Um, I had to unplug. I, I, I got on Twitter uh, just because I was in a good mood and wanted to ruin that. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe you're like me. I couldn't stay on there long before I just found myself getting angry, getting frustrated. I, I was like, okay, or watching the news. I just had to like, step back because it's always, we value the mother or we value the unborn. Value the mother, we value the unborn. And it grieves me to, to have that kind of narrow-minded ethic of life, that we don't value both, right? And so um, I would encourage you, maybe you need to, like me, like step back from that, spend some time in prayer. I would argue if you find yourself in that spot, just ask yourself, is this helping me love God and love other people? I would guess it's not. A um, couple of things that I, I looked at this week that I found helpful in thinking through this a little bit was um, a New York Times op-ed piece um, by Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, thanks, Brandon, for putting me onto that. Uh, it was, it's a well-written article where she talks about moral, uses the idea of moral imagination for, for Christians to think through this. So I encourage you to read that. She's a brilliant writer, brilliant um, scholar. And then another uh, a book that uh, they, the Gospel Coalition just made available for free. It's called The Secular Creed, um, which is based off all the little yard signs that you see, you know, love is love, 
um, you know, uh, gay rights or human rights, women's rights or human rights. There's, uh, the author is Rebecca McLaughlin, a PhD from Cambridge University. She is actually a member at Hope Fellowship Church in Cambridge and very, very close friends, best friends with Rachel Gilson, who did our, a seminar a few months back for us. Uh, Rebecca is brilliant, like brilliant. Everything she's written is worth reading, but uh, she has a really good chapter here that helps actually explain why even the idea of women's rights is rooted in a biblical worldview. It's brilliant, very well written, and you can download it for free from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, we'll try to share those links because I know it's like hard uh, copying down links uh, in a service, so we'll try to share those uh, links on our um, Facebook page and maybe on our Slack general channel. All right. Today we're talking about uh, the role of faith and works and from James. And when you look at faith and works, there's generally two extremes uh, when it comes to this. Uh, one extreme is represented by a guy I, um, I ended up sitting next to on an airplane uh, many years ago. We got, got on an airplane in Detroit, headed to Amsterdam, that's a long flight, and uh, talked about religion because what do you want to do when you're stuck next to someone for six and a half, seven hours, but talk about religion. Um, but that wasn't me. I didn't sit down and go, hey, you want to talk about religion make it really uncomfortable? Um, but it came out when he asked me where I was going and I explained I was going to a pastor's conference, global pastors and missionaries conference in Amsterdam. And he was like, oh, really? And he was, started asking questions. And I found out that he's, he's a Jehovah's Witness. And we began to talk about who Jesus was, because that's the big difference between Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses. But then we also began to talk about the role of faith and works. And he, he came down, oh, yeah, you got to believe. But, my gosh, yeah, you got to have all these, you got to do these things. you gotta, you got to do good works. You can't rely on just your faith. Like, you've got you've to love these people. you got to do these things. you got to do these rituals. you got to follow these actions. And, and he just, like, slid this weight in there, and he could not understand the idea of salvation by faith alone, that, that faith was the root and the foundation, the beginning and the end of actually how a person uh, is saved. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very amiable conversation, but it got um, passionate at points. Uh, <laughs> that was one side. The other side of the spectrum when it comes to faith and works uh, was something I ran into when I was pastoring in Kentucky. We had, um, I remember having a conversation with a young woman who uh, had grown up in the church, she'd grown up in uh, going to youth group, going to, to camps and things like that. She had been baptized at one point. Um, and here she was, a young adult, and I was talking to her because I knew she had come from a church background and, and I was asking about that. She was telling me, and then I said, um, so how, how's, how's your faith now? What do you do? Uh, where do you go to church? And she said, oh, I don't go to church. And I was like, oh, okay. And she's like, yeah, I dropped out of church a few years ago. It's like, okay. And I began to explore and ask some questions. So do you, do you meet with anyone? Do you do Bible study? Do you pray? Do you uh, have any desire to do those things? And she basically said, no. She said, I'm not going back to church. I don't really think I need it. Um, I'm okay. And I was, began to ask questions about, well, don't you think like the Christian life is more than just a, a momentary decision that you made where you baptized and maybe it was a big emotional moment for you, a powerful moment, but like, isn't faith more than that? And she said, well, no. Uh, see, she'd been taught once. She'd been say, taught, you're saved by faith alone. And she'd been taught, once you're saved, you're always saved. Can't lose your salvation. So then she basically admitted that nothing in her life reflected that, that experience of Christ. So you have two extremes. One where faith, like, oh, you better, you better get some works in there. You, you better have some works because you're not saved if you, if you don't have like a, a, a stockpile of works, right? And then the other side is like, Oh, you don't need any works at all. You can do whatever you want to do, and, and you're okay. And James addresses this uh, today in our passage. Um, he digs in 
to this, this idea, but he's, he's doing it in a different way than, uh, than Paul does. Um, Paul addresses, sometimes James gets pitted against Paul. This is why Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, when he experienced the freedom, because he was, he was Catholic and he had followed all the rules and rituals, and sometimes would spend three hours a day in confession to his priest. The joke is he literally would wear his priests out trying to confess every single sin, every thought, every act. And, and uh, he finally learned that we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And that set him free from the idea of works. Like, it's not works. I don't contribute to it, right? Um, that didn't mean it didn't, he had, didn't have an understanding of how it impacted life, but he, he saw that as, a, as like gospel freedom, right? Now I, I'm, not, I don't have to, I'm not on a treadmill trying to please God. Uh, so he looked at James. He actually wanted to throw James out of the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, he called it a, a strawy epistle, uh, kind of weak, kind of not very strong. And it's because of the passage we just read, uh, we've already read today about faith and works. And that's but but James, uh, Paul on one side is addressing what Martin Luther was dealing with, the person who who's afraid they've never done enough. How can I know I've pleased God? Right? What can I? Well, how many works do I need to do? Um, and Paul is addressing that, and he's also making sure that Christians don't fall back into that. Like, oh, you were saved by faith, but now you kind of keep yourself by doing enough good deeds. And so that's Paul. James is on the other side, approaching or dealing with like the woman I had in, uh, knew in Kentucky, right? Who thought, well, I've got faith. Why do I need any works? I'm good. My life's fine. I'm okay. Uh, I'm, I'm saved by grace, right? And so I'd encourage you, if you want to read more about Paul's approach to that, read the book of Galatians. <clears throat> but today's passage in James 2, verses 14 through 16, could be called the core passage of the book of James. Uh, James 1.22 is maybe the central verse, be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive yourselves. But this is like maybe the core actual uh, section of the whole book. The big idea for today for this passage is we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Now, I didn't come up with that, so don't think, wow, that's brilliant, Blaine. That's not me. Uh, you've probably heard it if you've been in church much. It's a really good historic uh, idea. We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. There's always evidence of it. There's always works that, that, that demonstrate that. So we see this, uh, James addressed this by talking about three types of faith, uh, two that are illegitimate and one that's legitimate. The first one is what I call, we'll call dead faith. The second one is demonic faith. And the third one's demonstrative faith. Now, I know some of you that are from more demonstrative worship backgrounds, you're like, yeah, demonstrative faith. That means clapping and raising your hands in worship. No, that's not what I mean. Uh, <laughs> though that's cool. That can be evidence that you believe in Jesus, but that's not the, that's not the faith we're talking about. Um, we're talking about faith that is demonstrated in life. So let's talk about these. Dead faith is what he addresses first. In verses 14 through 17, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, this is what you call a rhetorical question, right? Like the ones your mom used to ask. Are you really going to go out and play with your friends before you clean your room like I asked you to? What's the answer? No, mom... I'm not. <laughs> you might have one foot out the door, but what was the question? It was not a question, right? It was a statement and, uh, in, the, in the form of a question. So this is what James is saying. What good is it if you have faith, but, but you don't have any works? Can that faith actually save you? Is it saving faith? And he says, no. 
And then he, he begins to use, he uses several examples uh, in this passage to help us to understand it. He says, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, if we see this person, uh, this doesn't mean poorly clothed, like they're not wearing the best stuff, right? Like they're kind of maybe five years out of style. Uh, maybe their shoes aren't super cool, uh, you know, whatever. Like, no, th- this, is, this is somebody who is poorly clothed, as in they barely got clothes on if any, <laughs> they're almost naked, and then they have no food, like, there's nothing to eat. Um, and so this is a destitute person. And he uses the phrase brother or sister here, pointing to the idea that you know this person. This person's actually in your church, in your Christian circle, at least. So if not in your church, you at least know you're a brother or sister in Christ with them, right? That they're in the family. And then he says, what, what good is it if you look at him and say, go in peace, now, the, word, the, the phrase go in peace is a, was a common Jewish uh, uh, greeting and a, a farewell, and, and Jesus used it himself. But the verb itself can actually be translated in the middle voice, meaning, meaning G, James is saying, uh, go in peace, and then he says, uh, what does he say? You tell them to, uh, uh, what does he say, brother or sister? Uh, who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and you, you say to them, basically, go warm yourself, feed yourself, is what the, what the, the Greek kind of says there. It's, it's like, hey, hey, you look cold. You know what you should do? You should put some more clothes on. That's what you should do, and you're, you're hungry, aren't you? Well, you look kind of hungry. You should go over to Barcelona and get something to eat, right? That's, that's what you're doing. And, oh, I'll pray for you, Right? <laughs> And God's like, don't say that and don't pray for that. I've already answered the prayer. You know, the, you know where his clothes or her clothes are? They're in your closet right now. <laughs> Go give them. Do you know where their food is? It's in your pocket or in your pantry. You should help them. And so James is drawing this out and, say, and, and is helping us to understand that when you can do that, when you look at another person's need and not act on it, whatever you profess about Jesus, you are, you are, your faith is not real. It's dead. It is a professing faith that's not a practicing faith. Um, some of us grew up with this in our home, and maybe in our home, if not in our home, maybe in the church that we were part of as kids, if you grew up in church. You, you saw people who professed Jesus, but then when you kind of looked at their lives, they seemed really, really selfish. Their whole lives, everything about them, Everything they said and did served them. Even if they were doing something in the church, it was ultimately to serve themselves, right? And, and I know people, you looked at them and you thought, well, if that's Christianity, no thank you, right? I, I've, I have run in, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people outside the church who, who talk about Christians like that, that they know. Not, not like theoretical Christians, but like Christians that they actually know. And then they said, oh yeah, my, my, uh, my sister's husband's you know, parents or something. Like they, my gosh, they go to church every week, but they are the meanest people I know. So selfish, right? Like they, you know, backbiting. They're always talking about other people. They're so greedy. Like, like we've seen people like this, right? We know this. And maybe even in, at times have sought that, seen that in our own lives. James is saying that this is not Christianity. This is not real faith. Faith without works is dead. It's, it, it's, it, it defeats the purpose of faith. Kind of like giving someone a dead plant. Imagine, imagine someone brings you a dead plant. Like you open the door and they're like, here. And you're like, what, 
what? It's a dead plant. They're like, no, but I wanted to get you a plant. And they're like, yeah, but it's, it's dead. Like, no, no, it's, it's a plant though. Look. And you're like, yeah, but it, it, it kind of defeats the purpose of plants. Plants are supposed to be living. They're supposed to be green and growing and producing oxygen, right? This one does none of those things. Is it really a plant anymore? And, 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 and so it's useless. It's dead. It's worthless. We live in a culture that values comfort over sacrifice, values ourselves over serving others. Um, and we, we need to be careful about taking the gospel for granted that somehow that, that the Christian life can be this uh, insular experience where we don't take on the suffering of others, where we don't have to sacrifice for others. There is a calling there, right? And, and, and it should, here's the thing I, I'm convinced of. If, you, if, you're, uh, if you're not uncomfortable, you're probably in a bad place. If you're not uncomfortable, like slightly comf- uncomfortable going like, oh, I think I should probably serve these people. Oh, am I, am I really being a good steward? Because I think it's living in that tension, right? You'll never have your life so perfectly balanced. Well, I'm serving people at 40%. I'm doing this at 20%. And no, life doesn't work like that, right? It's always the seasons and, re- and things are changing all the time. And that's why I say, if you don't live in that tension, if you're not embracing the tension of, am I actually caring for the people around me? Am I loving? Am I serving? Am I being generous with what God has given me? then you can settle into making excuses for laziness and spiritual apathy. So that's dead faith. The second type of faith James deals with here in verses 18 and 19 is what you'd call demonic faith. He says, some, some will say, you have faith and I have works. Saying, hey James, you got your way, I got mine. You got your way of, of oh, let's not complicate it, we're both right. Um, you have faith, I have works. This, this can sound like two different sides of the Christian church, right? Like on one side, you've got the f- people that are faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And then you've got the people that are like, you know, works, 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 let's serve, love, you know, do all the things that, out there that we need to do. And, and it can seem like there's, uh, there, the people can often fall over into one of those ditches or another. And so he says, verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's addressing here those who are calling or who, who believe in faithless works, and on the other hand, those who believe in a workless faith. Those who believe in faithless works and workless faith. Faithless works obscure faith by their actions. So they, they're so busy doing, so busy acting, so busy serving, so many, all, the, all these other things, making sure, checking off, got that, got that, done that, yep, yep. My life's all about all these things out here that behind it all is not actually belief in the gospel. It's not actual faith in Jesus. It's all works. And it can have a dash of Jesus thrown in there, but the truth is this is really any religion. Depending on your religion, you may have to pay your karma or visit Mecca um, or speak in tongues. Works people believe that what you do is you do enough works and then God kind of owes you. You put God in your debt, that, that he owes you salvation, he owes you heaven, he owes you eternal life because you've done enough good works. Works people tend to live to prove that God, that they are good enough for God, that they're worthy for God to love them. And I would argue if you grew up in one of those homes where you feel like you had to earn your parents' love and approval, your tendency is always going to be towards works. It's always going to tend to be, well, I can't really just rest in God's 
you know, unconditional love. Like, I got to do something. I got to do some things for him to really love me. But that's religion. And the God, that's really about the self, isn't it? It's about the self. It's about self-improvement, about self-activity, about uh, self-moral performance. Where the gospel is about God. It's, it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done. One Christian theologian says, every religion says that the Savior by which we can be saved is the person we see in the mirror every morning. True Christianity says the opposite. Now, other religions might use the God language and stuff like that, but when it comes down to it, the only way they can get in God's graces or become one with the universe or whatever it is, is to do enough right things, follow enough rituals, follow the rules, the, whatever the, the, the pillars of that faith are, right? That's the only way you get there, to do things. Christianity flips that on its head, on its head and says, no, you enter by what's been done by Jesus. That's faithless works, people. Workless faith people can, can sound real spiritual. And the problem with that is they can often use gospel theology, right? How many, how many times have I, I've, I've said it, I've preached it, I've, I've heard it. All our works, Isaiah says, are filthy rags, right? So don't worry about any works, right? It's basically, it's all about Jesus. Jesus done it all, right? It is finished, right? So now we just get to rest in that and just enjoy that. And, and it doesn't really matter what we do. And it's a dangerous way to live. They, they're like, well, listen, Jesus intercedes for me. Listen, God is sovereign, right? God's sovereign. So why do I need to pray? Isn't God going to get done what he wants to get done? We don't have to serve. That. We don't want to fall into legalism, right? We want to be legalistic, following rules, having a quiet time every day, that sure sounds like Pharisees, right? I don't want to be a Pharisee. But that's not the gospel. Yes, Jesus did all the works for us, but that doesn't mean what we do today doesn't matter. What you do demonstrates who you're living for. And James actually draws this in by saying we can have correct theology and not have salvation. You can have correct understanding of who Jesus is and not be saved, not have eternal life. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now that, that goes back to the, the Old Testament Shema, which uh, Jewish people would recite every day. Behold, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Like this, this, this idea, our God, this was the center of Jewish theology. You believe God is one. You have the core of theology here. And yet, demons have that as well. You see, demons have correct theology. James, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 34, and it says, And he, Jesus, would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Demons know Jesus. They knew who Jesus was on multiple occasions. They, they would cry out, oh, Don't torture us before the end, son of God. Right? Like they would shout out and he would have to quiet them. They knew who he was. They understand the Trinity way better, I think, than we do. They understand heaven and hell, I think. I think they understand what Jesus did on the cross. But they are not saved. They have no redemption. Everything they do is not for Jesus. It's actually against Jesus. So what he, James is saying is, listen, you can actually have correct knowledge in your head, in your life, not be for Jesus. 
You can have correct theology in your head and not be saved. You can have correct theology and understanding in your head and not be in Jesus' kingdom. In fact, be fighting against Jesus' kingdom. So we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Works will always follow that faith and give evidence. And that's the third uh, kind of faith that James talks about here. Demonstrative, or what you could call saving faith here. Verse 20 is another rhetorical question. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? (laughs) It's like, hey, moron, do you want to be shown, proven that, (laughs) I mean, he's... He's, he's kind of throwing some derogatory terms in here. So he actually changes it. says it's not just dead, it's useless, right? Useless. I, uh, whenever I hear this word, I think it was because I read James so much in college, I hear this word uh, in this verse. Um, I always think back to college. My roommate from college was from Tarboro, North Carolina, which is on the other side of the sticks, right? Like, like rural area, you had to go through that to get to where he grew up. Um, and he had a thick North Carolina accent. But one, and I love, I love this dude. He's a pastor and a church planner in Jacksonville to this day. Um, but uh, loved him. But one of the things he used to say, I do not know where this came from. He's, he would talk about something being useless. He'd say, it's useless as a screen door on a submarine. Now, can you put a screen door on a submarine? Absolutely. There's no law that says you cannot do that. But it kind of defeats the purpose of submarines by its very nature. And so a life of faith is like, uh, is, is like a submarine. It has a purpose. No works is like slapping a screen door on it. It defeats the entire purpose of the sub. Your faith was meant to produce works. When it doesn't, your faith is useless. He uses two examples here of historic biblical history. First was Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, you gotta understand what's happening here. Verse 21 and 23 have to be understood together. Verse 21, if you take it by itself, sure sounds like you're basically just, you're justified by works, what you do. But verse 23, um, verse 21 is a quote from Genesis 22. Verse 23 is a quote from Genesis 15. So what he's saying is, Abraham, the, the phrase Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God actually came before he offered up Isaac. So, so Abraham was saved. He was righteous, right? He was declared righteous. He was declared a friend of God. And, and then sometime later, years later, he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, which he didn't. If you don't know the story, he didn't ultimately do it. But God called him uh, to, to, to do that in order to uh, test his heart and, and have him uh, being willing to lay down his son, if needed, and also to picture Christ, who would come one day as the son. But Abraham was justified by faith, and then that faith 30 years later was, was demonstrated through his works. So this isn't you're justified by doing enough. He was justified early on, but his faith proved, or his actions proved his faith. It demonstrated it. This is similar to Jesus's, uh, well, sorry, just in verse 23, 
Abraham was called a friend of God. I, I know you could just read over that, but just stop and, and, and ponder that for just a moment. A finite human being, right, limited, is described as a friend of the infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal God. That's kind of a crazy thing. Here's my buddy, Abraham. You know, it's like, what? I, I can't even get my mind around that. The God, and it wasn't Abraham going, hey, I'm hope I'm God's friend. He said, no, Abraham is my friend. And you know why? It wasn't that Abraham did the right things, so therefore God called him his friend. It is that Abraham trusted God, and God called him his friend. Because what do friends do? They trust each other, right? If your really good friend says, hey, I need you to do this, your actions demonstrate your faith. Your actions don't somehow try to uh, legitimize your faith. Jesus echoes this in John 15, verse 14. He told his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Not do what I command you and I will call you friends. He says, no, you are my friends. And by obeying me and following my commandments, that just proves that. It proves you trust me. The works that are referred to here by James, you know, we haven't really talked about the nature of them, but they really are, can be boiled down to, to the greatest commandments Jesus gave, right? Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Those two things. If, if what you're doing, your actions, your works, love God or a demonstration of love, for glory for God, or love for other people, those are good works that demonstrate your faith in God. And a lot of them are small daily things that you and I are called to, be, to do, small works, and sometimes many people won't see them, but sometimes God calls you to demonstrate your faith by doing something big, by taking a big step. And, some, and I, I would say this, over our lifetime, there's been maybe four or five of those experiences, but one of them was in 2006 when I was pastoring in Kentucky at a full-time, you know, I was pastoring a decent-sized church, and um, I was teaching on a, at a, a small college nearby and had opportunity to, uh, to pursue. They were, the school was growing, and they were adding a new professor position. The dean wanted me to apply for that. Um, and, and I had a couple of other options with some churches that, that were interested in, in uh, me interviewing. Um, and, and yet, I get this gnawing idea God wants me to move to Boston. I get this gnawing idea that I'm supposed to uproot my family with kids, you know, six, nine, and 11 at, the point, at that point and, and move, to, move to Boston with no money during a recession. And I kept going, <clears throat> God, I think, I think uh, we've got a bad connection. Uh, I did spend a lot of time in prayer uh, about it, but I felt compelled to take that step. And I did not know what was on the other side. I had no guarantees. All I had was a sense that I trusted the God who was calling us to leverage our lives for this moment. And I had no idea if in five years I was not going to be moved back, moved back somewhere in the South and pastored. And yet God showed his faithfulness in that, right? And I believe that sometimes in your life, your Christian life, God will test you with big steps, big opportunities, and, and you bring in other people. I talk to everybody about this. Got as much insight and prayer and uh, as many people around me speaking into that as possible. So don't go just hide off by yourself. I think God's called me to do this thing. No, you, God gives you the church for that, to walk with you, to pray with you, to help you. 
Um, So sometimes they're big things, but I want to invite you that today, tomorrow, as you get up and go to work, there are works for you to do. There are things that God wants you to do. God also uses, or James also uses Rahab, the prostitute here. We don't have time to go into her story, but basically she risked everything. She was not an Israelite, risked her entire, her life, her entire family's life in order to identify with the people of God. And I love that she shows up as a hero through the New Testament. She is in the genealogy of Jesus. Like she's, she's this amazing story of a woman who risked it all, right? Um, and I, and I want to bring this into focus with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, because I think this, this captures really what James is telling us today. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So this is, you're saved by grace through faith alone. This is not your own doing. Just to remind you, it's not your works. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now listen, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So all James is telling us is, you are saved by faith alone, but, but saving faith is not never alone. You have works to do. God has ordained works for you. So Christ has done all the works necessary for you to be saved. Now he has works for you to do because you are saved. That's the core of James' message today. Now, as I close, the, the very real temptation for us today, if, you, if, if you're not a Christian, hopefully that helped to clarify how a person becomes a Christian and what it actually means to live the Christian life out. But as a Christian, if you're here today, um, you can be challenged, you can, you can um, be tempted to do just enough good works to assuage your, your uh, conscience. You know, I go to church. I, I'm in community group. I've got some Christian friends. I give some money. I, I serve occasionally, right? Kind of doing enough. And you can end up settling into a complacency. And I think James would tell us today that that's as dangerous as the person who says, um, look, I, I, I have faith but no works. It's the person who becomes complacent in their works. Because the picture of the Christian life is a picture of growth. The picture of the Christian life is a new life. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been given new life. You've been regenerated. Jesus describes it as being born again. You're in a new family. What happens when a three-year-old stops progressing? Right? When there's no medical, physical reason for them to stop progressing, but they stop progressing. Something's seriously wrong. They're not embracing what they've been given. And you and I have been given this Christian life. So I want to challenge you with a few questions. As Maybe you can bow your heads if you feel led to. Just to reflect on these as we move into our time of response. I just want to ask you, just bluntly today, do you love God? Do you actually love him? Or do you just respect him? Are you growing in that? Have you grown in that love over the last six months or a year or two years? Do you love others, including those that are hard to love, maybe especially those that are hard to love? What have you done differently to love others in the last year? How comfortable are you with sin in your life? Sins are anti-works built on an anti-gospel. 
It is unbelief. How comfortable are you with them? What is one God, what is one work God is calling you to do today because you have been saved by Jesus? God, we thank you that you have sent your son to to redeem us from sin and, and to do all of the works that are necessary for us to have life with you, to know you, to experience your goodness and your mercy and your kindness. And yet we know, God, that um, you have redeemed us, not to be comfortable, but to, to live holy lives, to walk with you in this world, to represent Jesus, to love you and to love others as part of your kingdom. So I pray for those of us that maybe that have become comfortable with our spot. We've kind of slipped into a, a space where we're not feeling really moving forward. I pray you'd help us, Lord, to, to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to, to pursue the works that you have for us. Fully trusting, fully knowing that you have paid the price once and for all for our salvation and that it is our joy now to love others in your name, to sacrifice for others in your name, to be, to model Jesus' compassion and kindness to others. Help us. We'll do it imperfectly. We'll do it in our own broken ways, but we pray that you would use it perfectly for your kingdom, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.